Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Tanya. And I'm Carrie. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee or perhaps an iced coffee for the summer. This is episode 138. Today we are continuing our 2023 Summer Book Club by discussing chapter 7 and 8 of Realizing Diversity, an equity framework for music education by Karen Howard. We'll also play a fun summer game. And in our CODA section, We'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. So now we're going to play a fun summer game with the music twist because okay. um, it is summer. So Tanya, yeah, how do you feel about a song association game? That's what I do all day in my brain anyway. Let's I know. So I thought it would be fun that, you know, they actually have a ton of these on YouTube because I was just poking around and like that you can play, you know, cool. maybe with kids at school. That'd be kind of fun where it like puts up a word and then they've got 10 seconds to come up with a song that contains oh, that word. I love those. Yeah, that could be really fun. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. I've got 10 words. And I'm going with like a summertime theme. So I'm really not thinking of any specific songs when I'm throwing these words at you, although it's hard not to. But I'm curious to see what you think of when I when I give you these words. Well, now that we're recording, I'll probably go blank. No, that's what I'm curious about is like when we put you on the spot. All I can think of is Lovely Day by Bill Withers. That's all I got right now. Okay, I know. All right. Well, here we go. And then I've got a timer. I'm giving you 10 seconds because that's how the game goes. Apparently is 10 seconds. Ooh, ah, okay. Are cool. you ready? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Your first word is I'll, I'll start the timer after I say the word. Your first <laughs> word is sunshine. In the sunshine of your love. But you could also go, sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. You could also go, sunshine, rain. <laughs> you know that one. Nice. Three okay. points for you. I don't think there's points. Am I supposed nope. to just come up with as many as I can? or I, what You only have to do one. Oh, okay, cool. But I love it. You can do more than one. You know, Best my character. cheesy brain thought of Sunshine Day by uh, the Brady Bunch. <laughs> oh, nice. It's Sunshine Day. All right. Your next word is sea, like the ocean, the sea. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. Good job. Right. Okay. Again, my cheesy brain. Whoa, I was louder that time. Sorry, my timer is being really inconsistent with its sound. Um, I thought of under the sea from the Little Mermaid. So there you go. Also, it could be, um, oh man, what's his name? Uh, b- b- somewhere. Oh, Yeah. Good job. All right. Your next word is related to the last one. Beach. Beach. Wow. Now I'm drawing a blank because, of course, all I think is beach boys, who I don't particularly like. Sorry. Um, Beach. (laughs) That Mm. was it. That was your 10 seconds. I know. Embarrassing. Beach. I'm drawing a blank too. I literally just wrote these words down and didn't even think while I was writing them. We're landlocked, man. We don't I know. do a lot of beach. I don't know. Okay. Oh, well, here you go. Throw you a bone. I, I wrote this down before you told me. Um, Day. What? 
day. Lovely day. <laughs> lovely day. Lovely day. Lovely. I love it. Mm-hmm. Good job. Here it comes. Here's your timer. Hey, good job. Okay. Next one is fun. Oh, so now I was thinking Beach Boys. And she'll have fun, fun, fun till her daddy takes a deep bird away. Which, again, not my favorite. Um, yeah. Good job. All right. Next one is swim or swimming. Swim. Swim. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's going to happen. I, yeah, I ran out. What do you got for a swim? Um, I honestly can't think of one either. See, there you go. At least it's equal. I'm not cheating. I'm not Googling. Oh, um, well, I swam. Uh, it's in Greece. He's well, sure. army, got my suit down. Remember, we That's talked true. about that in the in the last quiz that I gave you. I don't know that I would have been able to think of it in 10 seconds. All right. Uh, grass, as in green grass. Um, things we did on grass by um, XTC, one of my. Laying in the grass, my heart to set a fire. Anyway, it's called Things We Did on Grass, which has a double meaning. I was going to say, I think you're thinking. <laughs> uh, the song is called Grass. Just Okay. Not- okay that's the the hook of course your next word is hot i hate this song feeling hot 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 (laughs) you know yes that i I don't yeah but that's what happened sorry um i thought of it's getting hot in here Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're so PG. I mean, G rated. We're, we're so under G rated. I uh, filtered myself out there. Okay. That two more. Out. Can you handle two more? Yeah. Okay. Boat. Boat. Of course, more Beach Boys. Well, they didn't do it originally. This, I head out the sloop, John B. My grandfather. But they don't even say boat in that song, do they? Hmm. You know, you could do children's songs. You're allowed to do children's songs, too. Michael rode the boat ashore. Hallelujah. I was thinking of sailing on the boat and the tide rolls high. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last one. Mm. Vacation. Vacation, all I ever wanted. Vacation, have to get away. Vacation, meant to be spent alone. That was exactly what I was hoping you would sing. Nice job. Nice job. Huh. That's, that was a little trickier on Mike. Hmm. Interesting. So we need a song about beach. beach. <laughs> if anyone's got a song with the word beach, send mm. us a message. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they will. And we are continuing our discussion on realizing diversity and equity framework for music education by Dr. Karen Howard. And we are on chapter seven and eight. Um, Gosh, it feels like this has gone really fast, Carrie. And you and I were talking off mic earlier about how, well, I mean, even though these are the last two chapters of the book, 
like almost half the book is filled with some appendices that yeah. we won't really have an opportunity but we're gonna we've, we've got some plans we have a plan for that we've got a plan yeah but anyway back to chapter seven and eight chapter seven action in music education and here is where um the rubber meets the road mm-hmm. we are talking about standards 16 17 18 19 20 um and our responsibility as music educators and um and yeah where do you want to dive in carrie um, well, I just, I mean, immediately on the top of page 124, I start right away, um, something that she was talking about, about challenging injustice in music education, requires us to raise consciousness and direct it towards what Christine Slater described as taking for granted ways of doing things as well as belief systems that support what is unfair. But what I loved was this next sentence. I mean, I love all of it, but this sentence in music education, this means Long-standing practices, as noticed by Slater, including low expectations of students of color, practices that privilege white and middle to upper class economic backgrounds in teaching and learning environments that exclude people and their musical practices. That's so again, just really I- calling it out and calling it what it is. And yep. then this chapter is really then that call to action because, you know, this is where again, it just, we take it one step farther because we can sit here and say, I'm noticing this and I'm seeing this, but then what are we ourselves as music educators doing to attempt to correct some of these wrongs? Not that they'll ever all be corrected, but to do our part. And then even more so, what can we do to encourage our students to not just name and notice, but correct? Right. And I also highlighted exactly what you just read. Yeah. Um, which stood out to me and probably you as well, because I feel, I mean, I am teaching in a school where there's a lot of privilege and a lot of white privilege. And there's um, definitely overall a lack of awareness that we are, um, that our environment, well, not that our environment is mostly white, but it's that same problem of like, well, this is normal and everything else is not normal kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Not just from the students, but I just think from the community in general, like, I mean, honestly, I've been there only a year. So it's not like I know what's going on in everyone's head or in everyone's classroom for sure. Right. Um, However, yeah, I would say that predominantly the way we teach and the way the students are mostly learning um, has been driven by these practices for white upper and middle upper class kids um, and their backgrounds. Anyway, um, in that next paragraph, something else that stood out is um, this leadership and those with boots on the ground, that would be us, Gary, must put their words into action. Instead of supporting music education for all in words only, we can make it a reality. Music for all that is relevant to all. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I kind of feel called out about that. No, um, that totally. Because, yeah, I mean, because that is the... <laughs> that it's is a, a very I. famous phrase in our Kodai-inspired yes. world. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, really distinguishing the difference between music for all and music that is relevant for all, because I feel like I can say that I've I've worked hard to make sure my classroom is welcoming to my students, 
what I don't think I have worked hard at enough yet is making all music relevant to all of my students. So I feel like I definitely have had many cases where my students are compliant to what I do in my class, but I haven't done my due diligence to make real world connections and to all my students, to, to my students of color, as well as my white students to, to really make, and we've talked about this too, that connection between school music versus home music or traditional school music versus music from cultures that are unfamiliar to them and why it's important to learn that too so well and to expand on what you were saying about making the music relevant to the kids I know I have failed in choosing music that is relevant to the kids and giving it its due diligence like it's uh upholding it alongside of any of these other traditional um, musics that, you know, we've been brought up to think are the be all and end all. Right. And even when we do, and even when we do bring in music that is relevant culturally to our kids, are we um, changing it up and stripping it of all of its authenticity by making it whitewash? Like, well, Emma just sent us that little video um, that you and I were just watching. Oh, yeah. It's like the choral directors. The choral director yeah. directing all the single ladies and asking for rounded vowels and like, no, 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 no nasal here. Yeah. Yeah. We want diction. that rounded diction. No, I I know you might be singing from here, but you got to look at the, yeah. the manuscript. At, yeah. And no choreography. We're going to sing this standing <laughs> yeah, still. Yeah. This is yeah. music class, not dance class, girls. Yeah, yep, yep. But I mean, yeah, there's so much truth to that because, and this is why I try to honestly stay clear of any like pop choral arrangement, like an arrangement of any sort of pop song, because how often do we see like the rhythms get straightened out and the melody gets simplified and then it just loses its... its right, so what's the point flavor. of doing it at all in that kind of um, ensemble? Exactly. Right? So on the one hand, you want to say, well, we should be able to do these in, in these mixed ensembles, but you've got to be true to the original right. uh, music. So in that right? case, if you really want to do the song, instead of finding some arrangement that washes it down, can you just teach it by rote? Can you teach it orally and hire a, a backup band instead of your accompanist to sit and play it at the piano, you know? Yeah. I don't know. At, at that point, is it? Uh, yeah, it, that just it just seemed, yeah, yeah. But then like, that really goes into that realm of, and I can see it why people argue for, and you know, this is specifically in elementary music why that modern band route is, you know, a good route for a lot of kids, and I can see the argument for it because it is more true and authentic to the kind of music they're listening to at home and on the daily. Well, yeah, but to how many? As- Speaking as someone who has had a a tiny bit of that modern band, um, Little Kids Rock, which are now called We Will, uh, training, which is fantastic because this foundation, they give instruments to classroom teacher or to music teachers for their classroom. They do a lot of things, um, a lot. I mean, it's it's great stuff, but it's it's still this. It's not the upper echelon of classical quote classical music yeah but it's still white rock and roll dudes well sure yeah yeah i I mean within that there's a tiny smattering of musics of other people's but 
I mean, you're talking about just like just like choir. If you get a if you have a choir, is single ladies the appropriate thing to do for that choir? And I'm not saying that that means that single ladies is on a uh, like I don't know that it, should every ensemble do every style of music. You know, when when you're doing modern band, should you be taking, um, I don't know, Paco Bell's Canon and, and putting it, because I tell you what, when I hear that kind of thing, uh, once in a while, you'll hear like a classical piece put on rock instruments. Yeah. I think it sounds cheesy. <laughs> yeah, then, it depends on how it's done, for sure. Um, I mean, I know I'm in the minority about this, but when I first heard Trans-Siberian Orchestra, I thought it, I thought it was a joke. And I know that's horrible of me, right? Um, but I was just like, why, why Coral of the Bells like this? Is this a, I don't know. I See, this is Yeah, me. that's not a great <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm insulting people and people are angry now. Uh, whatever. Um, yeah. Should You're single allowed ladies to have your opinions for sure. Done in, and I keep saying single ladies because, oh, we should say who this TikTok guy is because it's hilarious. It is funny. Um, and if I we have can been figure in that out situation. how to share things. We'll figure, we'll try to share it. I don't know. Do it just drives right to the point of the overall point of, yeah, I mean, whitewashing, as you say, it's and, whitewashing. and trying to apply our, you know, Western traditional Western music notation you know, Western European musical traditions onto a genre in which that music was not thought of in that way when it was first conceived and performed. This Beyonce right. song, I'm saying. So anyways, okay. So back to chapter seven. <laughs> Something so, that yeah, really we're helped barely me. in the chapter seven about, so as I was reading these standards, I was increasingly getting uncomfortable, which because, yeah. and we've talked about this throughout the year, when I noticed these music education, educator outcomes oh i'm looking at standard 18 students and music educators will speak up with courage and respect when a music culture and its attendant traditions has been marginalized or wronged by bias um i know i've talked in this podcast of a specific inst instance where um or maybe i've talked vaguely where that has happened in my career and i have not had the courage to speak up and go, wait a minute, can we, can we look at this? You know? But I think the fact that she breaks down these standards and speaks to them so specifically is because that's happened to all of us and will probably happen again, because it's a difficult thing to do. And it's, you know, when you feel like your job is on the line, when you feel like your reputation is on the line, you know, and we can all sit here in our own, you know, rooms in our own places and say, I could have, should have, would I should have spoken up and next time I will. But in the moment, it is difficult. And I appreciate that just by having these standards, it acknowledges that this is, these are goals to attain and to keep working on and that it's not an innate and easy thing to do, you know? Right. So that points directly to the vignette on page 135 where she talks about a new choral music educator returns to her hometown and takes a position teaching in a private religious high school. And then in celebration of pride day, she does a, a post on her own social media and her administration 
pressures her to take it down saying yeah. it doesn't uphold the value you know and it was it when i read that i recognized immediately because i remember when all that was going down on facebook and i remember karen howard posting about it um and you know the rallying behind supporting this teacher mm-hmm. um but that you know that's a real thing yeah. of course that you have to be cognizant that your administration or your parents of the students you teach or whomever is not going to support you and is going to eliminate you possibly. Um, And then to just have the wherewithal to do what's right, even though there's big consequences. Well, and I think that brings up the importance of, you know, when you're looking for a job, not only are they interviewing you, but you're interviewing them. And if it's a school that you feel doesn't align with your beliefs, like walk away, <laughs> run away, go find a job that does, because in the long run, you'll be miserable if you're trying to, you know, water down your curriculum, if you're afraid to speak up when you see things that are wrong, you know, and of course, sometimes you don't know that ahead of time, but you know, if you're working for a school where their philosophy is very clear, then you know, and you're able to look for a different job, but I understand easier said than done. You know, something like a Catholic school, you can kind of guess that there might be some tension there specifically. Yeah. But even still, it depends on the school completely. It depends on the school. Right. But, you know, just to further that, yeah, maybe don't don't work for those places or and or maybe you do and you try to be a change maker within the right if if at all possible if it's possible because yeah I mean as much as I say like I appreciate about that vignette the the idea that people rallied around her and were able to basically financially support her this educator through that decision that's not going to happen in most of the time so for someone to be in a position that they are let go or have to break their contract with their job and there's financial implications like I could never say to a teacher hey you better speak up over it's right even though that means you're going to lose your job like that's we all have to work we all have to live we all have to support ourselves and and our loved ones and So anyways, all that to say, of course, we want to do what we know is (laughs) what's right in the moment, even if it is putting ourselves out there. But I could never tell somebody to walk away from a job if they couldn't financially support themselves, you know? Well, and you're in a position where that's actually going to come up. I mean, if it hasn't already, because that mentoring teachers within our district I, has it come up with you yet? I mean, I'm not asking for personal specific things, but there have been things with brand new teachers who have said, my principal is saying this, but I want to do this and how far should yeah. I push it? And I'm not even talking about necessarily, um, you know, uh, specific social justice issues, just just speaking yeah. up about things. Well, I i mean, I've said that. I've admittedly said that because when I came to the district we're in now, Tanya, you probably heard me say this, like within my first couple of years in the district, it's like, mm, I'm not loving this thing that I'm seeing in my school. But again, it really wasn't an issue around social justice. It was probably more around scheduling or something like that. But I was like, mm, I just feel like I have to kind of lay low until I have my non-probationary contract and then I'll feel more comfortable to speak up and it shouldn't be that way it totally shouldn't be that way but it was in that moment it was because I felt like I'm not in a position to lose my job 
Yes. And I, and I understand that. All yeah. right. Can we back up a little bit and go and talk about, um, I highlighted a lot on page 131. I know I was going to say, <laughs> should we talk about disconsciousness? Yeah. Um, yeah. Create- I love how she broke this down. Yes, and I'm quoting from page 131. To create equity-minded pedagogies, we can also apply the term disconsciousness to sexism, ableism, classism, and more. Well, and to back up, disconsciousness meaning... Um, this is, I'm, I'm quote, reading a quote, and this is from Joyce King, that disconscious racism is an uncritical habit of mind, including perceptions, attitudes, assumptions, and beliefs that justifies inequity and exploitation by accepting the existing order of things as given. Which is something that I, and I know everybody does all sure. the time. And yeah, I'm always reasoning in my head when I see some, well, or not even reasoning, just like accepting um, that, oh, here's an inequity. Well, yeah, but that's because of this, that, and the other, you know, uh, that's very easy to do. And it is a habit of mind. And back to what I was talking about, my school um, being a upper middle-class white, mostly white kids school. And like that, that's, what's going on is that there's these habits of mind um and it is perpetuated when you're not faced daily with um having to think through these things when when you're surrounded by like people when you're surrounded by people who look like you vote like you act like you are in the same tax bracket then these things they don't you don't think through them Right. Yeah, a lot. Right. Or the other side of the coin. And they, they talk about this as an example, too, which we hear a lot in our field of I do not see color, the color blindness, you know, point of view where, you know, at once upon a time that that sounded lovely to me to say that. But the reality is, if you're saying I do not see color, then you're not truly valuing your students for who they are and their unique um, perspectives and what they bring to the table. And you're also... Uh, you're also not recognizing the inequities that exactly. we have in our society. Yeah. If you just, you're basically saying, I refuse to see there's a problem. And right. I mean, and we saw this with Black Lives Matter when people would say, well, all lives matter. And yeah. what that says is, I refuse to see a problem. Right. Or that problem is so long ago, we fixed it now. We're all equal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. you're making something out of nothing. There is no problem. And, and, and that's just completely not true. So, right. Right. But again, the people who disagree with us probably not listening right now. So that's okay. Right. But- so on that same page, and I think this is a lot of what we see going on in our country right now. Um, and I'm looking halfway down the page one. 31 in Beverly Tatum's 2016 related work in teaching white people about racism. She found that it is common for white students to feel guilty when they begin to understand the infectious nature of racism in the United States. And this discomfort may lead them to resist further acknowledgement and action. And, and yeah, I think that's why we are seeing um, parent groups and laws being drawn up to keep away this idea that there's inequity going on and that we've got racism that have been at like the roots of racism and how our our role in it our responsibility 
even if you personally were not there, right? Yeah. It has to do with, I don't want anyone telling me that I can't be as privileged as I am or that I should feel that it's not earned. Right. Yeah. And then to take it further, she talks about uh, a psychologist, Janet Helms, in 1997. She explored the process of white racial identity development, and she broke this down into there's like six phases that she mentions on page 132. And it's interesting because in this final stage of autonomy, wherein a white person's understanding of their own whiteness becomes part of their identity and behavioral choices, but you go through all these other stage stages to get you there. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm not quite all the way to number six, as far as like, I'm secure in my whiteness and what that means as far as my relationship, especially within my work as a teacher. I think I'm still in that growing awareness stage and I have a desire to change my own racism. I have a desire to make positive impacts, but I don't feel like I'm there all the time, which is, you know. And I think definitely for a very long time in my, you know, not so short life, but not really long life. um, I think we've been in the contact stage where a white person gives little attention to their own whiteness. Right. And I mean, I see that not just in the students that I teach now, but students I've taught in the past, when you do show a video of um, music makers, musicking, you know, from another culture and that whole giggle and, and uncomfortableness of, of the kids, the white kids going, Ooh, these people are different. Right. You know, yeah. yeah, it's it's just a lot. But um, to me, what was helpful, if I can go back for a minute, just to mentioning these standards, too, was, you know, I started to read these standards quickly, which was my first mistake. And, you know, it all kind of started to sound the same to me. And I'm like, wait, what's the distinction? So I went back and I underlined all the verbs in the standards. And that was really helpful to me since this chapter is specifically about action. It was yeah. especially helpful to go back and, and really distinguish and, you know, I'm a verb person. Like I'm always that person that's like, okay, so now what, you know, (laughs) like I get the big picture. Of course, I'm always starting trying to understand the big picture more, but like, what does it mean to, we have gives little attention. No, I'm sorry. I'm going back to the overall big standards uh, back on page 120, standard 16, 17. I'm kind of going back to the big idea here. Um, and she does, she, she reemphasizes these standards on page 137 as well. Um, so express, feel and express empathy, mm-hmm. take responsibility for standing up, have the courage to speak up and communicate, stand up to exclusion, prejudice, discrimination, even when it's not popular, join with diverse people to plan and carry out collective action. You know, I read that one and I was like, you and I, Tanya, are really good at having these conversations. <laughs> Yeah, but we are both from very similar positions and very similar backgrounds. So yeah, having a bigger conversation with a more diverse group. So anyways, sorry, that was my, um, my stumbly attempt to kind of to summarize out. what I was thinking about chapter seven is I appreciate action. I appreciate verbs. Of course, this is still not like a roadmap. There's no, um, there's no checklist of do this and you're there, but you know, the verbs were helpful to me. That's what I'm trying to say. 
Okay. Yeah. And then there's some explanation about critical race theory and critical yeah. pedagogy. And I think it's a shame that that's become a bad word. <laughs> that CRT and critical race theory has become such a um, knee jerk, like run for the hills word for um, so many on the right side of the political spectrum. I think that that's a shame uh, because a lot of times people don't even have a full understanding of what critical race theory is really. Right. Oh, and I also want to say on page 134 is a good reminder about the importance of um, making sure you're including, I'm going to just read again, this is a quote, um, reminding us to be actively anti-racist music educators should be sure to include perseverance, celebrations, victories, and delights from community of color. We can't just focus on the sad history, although it's important to know and to recognize, but to also make sure we're focusing on the celebrations and, and all the wonderful, inherently positive things of cultures that might be different than ours. Exactly. Yeah. Well, should we move on to chapter eight? Yeah. So... This is um, a path to critical consciousness and a summing up. And um, she goes into the vignette of the song, the Puerto Rico, uh, Puerto Rican Plena, Que Bonita Bandera, what a beautiful flag. And she talks again about leading students through many different versions of the song and explaining this song or having kids learn it know it and then watching that um sad sack string player watered down <laughs> watered down arrangements and that yeah that's yeah watered down arrangement and and again the whole whitewashing of of this song that has so much meaning for people um but yeah, but just the way she set that experience up for her students, um, I don't know who the teacher is, but um, whatever this teacher, I said she, but I don't know that it's she. I'm sorry. There I was a was teacher in Howard, actually. Oh, it was her. Oh, OK. OK. I wasn't sure. Um, maybe I just assumed that when I was reading it. But um, anyways, my point being like the way that she set up that that scenario that she could have that dialogue with their students where yeah they were being critical but they were coming from it from a place of knowledge and understanding they weren't being critical in a superficial way they were being critical in a in a respectful way based on their own experiences and their own knowledge and what well and they were being critical because she laid the groundwork of exactly really truly hearing the song because you don't want the first time that you hear this song and ingest it to be through a watered down whitening of of the song which is you know again what that whole idea of authenticity it's like mm -hmm. you yeah you want to be steeped in the meaning and again and this this is covered a lot in chapter eight but whenever you read on Facebook, that whole idea of stay in your lane, just teach music. That's all you're supposed to be doing. Just teach music. Well, what's the point? Um, if you're just teaching, I don't know, melodies and rhythms when they're not connected to 
relationships and people and ideas and togetherness and you know music exists for many reasons it's not just um it's not apolitical music music is political yeah and just giving opportunities for critical thinking so on page 144 um i'll read the quote by crafting meaningful opportunities for critical thinking our musicians can connect their developing musical knowledge to their lived realities we should ask ourselves do our chosen methods and materials shut down opportunities where our consciousness can be expressed and i say yes (laughs) oftentimes yes so you know i was just thinking through this and it's like okay i what can I do more of? And again, to me, it's it's providing opportunities for open dialogue and specifically around matters of, um, you know, making connections and relevancy to what's going on now. So like I think right. of an and example- not removing it from its context. Yes. Not teaching it in isolation. Right. But then even, yeah, taking something even from a context of history, but applying it to now. So I was just thinking through an example of like, okay, I see where she's going with this and what I could do. So like teaching my students the song we shall overcome and teaching them what an important place that song had in the civil rights movement. But taking it a step further then and saying to my students, is there a need for this song now? why do you think so? You know what I mean? So like getting them to think about that relevancy of that song to today's culture and today's world. And then that builds that empathy as well, where they're thinking about, you know, what do people need to overcome in our society, you know, specifically in our community and do people in Colorado have things to overcome? Well, of course they do. So then, you know, talking through that now, and then how can we be empathetic to that? And how can we make, have music be that, you know, that spark of change, how can music, and that goes into the social justice model too. So anyways, that was just an example of like, I've taught the song we shall overcome. I gave them the historical background of the song. We listened to many different musicians sing the song in different contexts, but what I didn't do was related to now. I didn't take it to that moment. And I think that's just it's a big step, but it's also a simple step just to, to, to create that space for open dialogue and critical thinking. No, that, that, yeah, that brings up a, a really good point is, can you put it in context of now? And then further from that, can we take those ideas and can we create our own, can we compose, can we create, can we improvise our own music about an injustice that we feel yeah right now right yeah and again going back to this idea of like it's not all about the literature but it is a lot about the literature in the context in which you introduce the literature and I think about especially us as elementary music educators and even more so getting into Kodai inspired music education have we done our research? Do we know where our songs come from? Are we teaching them with the correct context and historical background and sensitivity and, and respect? I mean, I will say 100% I haven't always. So I'm, that's something I'm working on is doing my due diligence with research and making sure I know more about the songs before I put them in front of my kids. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah, there's a lot to consider. Definitely. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, does it deserve a place 
in your music classroom. Right, right. You know what? You can't do everything. You just simply cannot teach all the musics, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What should, what, you know, what should have a place? Do you do the watered down, um, homogenized single ladies or um, <laughs> what a beautiful flag? Do you do that at all? Right. But that's the problem. It's like, if you don't do it, does, does it get learned? Maybe, you know, that's the problem too. Yeah. And yeah, I think so, that that's, that's back to many chapters ago is that that's a problem that a lot of, I know I'm guilty of a lot of music teachers misstep and go, well, I don't want to misrepresent, misrepresent. And I want to make sure I, I know about this so I can pass it on to my students and I'm, I, I'm confused or I'm concerned about, um, cultural appropriation so i'm just going to leave it alone entirely so again you know that that's another issue that comes up and it's an easy out it's an easy excuse you know it is it is so along so, uh, continuing that thought and i'm on page 146 47 now excuse me let us ask ourselves important questions such as and this I'm quoting from the book, the book, whose music are we not listening to or performing and why? How mm -hmm. can we and why should we commit to understanding how anti-bias pedagogies relate to music education? What does it mean for us to recognize complicity in racist, classist, ableist, biased pedagogies? How can developing a socially just disposition move us towards justice, justice, what might music education look like when we refuse to view its entirety through a lens of whiteness? You know what? That could be the subtitle. Right. Just that right there. Yeah. What might music education look like when we refuse to view its entirety through a lens of whiteness? I don't know. What might it look like? What, I know. What, it's hard what to, that like? it's yeah, hard to it's answer hard. that question because we haven't seen that. Well, and we've been steeped in and educated in white music and and you know that whole hierarchy idea right no yeah I highlight highlighted underlined all those questions as well just because I think before one plans their curriculum their yearly plans their lesson plans like <laughs> to think through those questions and really dig deep into challenging what we've done before and doing, not being afraid to, to do things that are new and outside of our comfort zone to seek new information <laughs> and not just go back to, well, I'm just going to teach it this way. Cause, cause it's fine, you know? And that's the thing. It's like on a daily basis, I feel like I go into my classroom and the way I teach is fine. My kids are generally, generally happy. I'm generally happy. I get good marks on my evaluation and, you know, things are, Musicking is happening and, you know, it's, it's an active, joyful music class most days. But then again, I think back and I'm like, how many of my kids have just been compliant and what can I do better? There's always more to do. Yes. All right. So can I ask you um, a loaded Kodai question? Oh my. Okay. And I'm not asking knowing the answer. This is something I've been mulling over for a I while. Um, how does... Kodai's idea of 
a mother tongue. And again, we're talking early 1900s. Um, hungry, Kodai really want, wanting to make sure that Hungarian people knew Hungarian folk music, right? So it had this idea of a, of a mother tongue that Kodai said children should, and all humans should know the music of their mother tongue of their own people, right? Right. In the 21st century, and also thinking about, you know, going towards a a just music education, how does that idea of a mother tongue fit with um, social justice in music education? Especially when we're not as homogenized as sure. you know, Hungary 1905. Right. Well, this was like the, que- I'm answering a question with a question. This is like the question that I brought up a few episodes back as well that we talked about, you know, this idea that moving from the known to the unknown, right? So that's also part mm-hmm. of it too, is is drawing upon kind of this bank of knowledge of folk music that would be familiar to the kids ears either in a literal way or in just like a tonal way you know so like if we think about that's still the case though right and this is my argument against because it's like you know my kids don't know bow wow wow who's talker thou until I teach them Right. My kids don't even sometimes know Itsy Bitsy Spider or Mary Had a Little Lamb, although those are usually a little bit more well-known. But, um, and then this goes back to the argument about not just thinking about music from from all cultures, but also thinking about music from various genres and things. And this is, again, is it the argument that our, some might say, and I heard hard kids, people, adults say this, that um, our students' mother tongue is actually pop music, pop music being popular music, music they hear on the radio. And I don't necessarily think that's the answer either. No, I've always, I've always pushed back against that. I know. Just because of the commercialized aspect of it. Right. 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 It's not. So when I go back to like the essence of like, what is the mother tongue for our kids, as far as like the kinds of music that I'm going to expose my kids to. Yeah. I mean, a good chunk of music that I do in my classroom is American, lack for a better word, folk music from different regions of America, also reaching into African-American traditions within the United States specifically, and then drawing to music of cultures outside of our own. So, you know, especially if trying to represent the population that I have, although I haven't always been great with that, um, you know, and to not make assumptions that all of my you know, Hispanic students are all from Mexico because they're not. They're also, I have students from Costa Rica. I have students from Central America, you know, lots but of- But we also kids. make assumptions that students grow up with music in their house at all. Exactly. So well, yeah, like you and- say, and a lot, a lot of our white American kids don't recognize these, what we considered, I don't know, standard- Sta- Standard staples. Yeah. yeah. So this, you know, it just- begs a question of in a Kodai inspired classroom, if the idea is that your teaching sequence of concepts is based on the repertoire, which is, which is something I've always loved about Kodai inspired teaching is that 
it comes from the repertoire. And then what that repertoire? repertoire yeah, <laughs> what repertoire and is how important is that? I guess it depends on who's in the room. And that just makes things. It makes things too convoluted as far as like, I can't make a sequence of teaching for these kids in this school. And then two minutes, two, two years later, I go teach in another school and I have a completely different group of kids. So now I have to completely rewrite. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just me being lazy and and focused on me but we have to be realistic we also have to be realistic and I really I mean I really truly go back to in many cultures not all obviously but in many cultures and there's also just kind of that vocal developmental model of the so me and the so me la so me is a very common thing that we hear in and I would argue that developmentally just you know after years and years and years of teaching small children that that so me interval is going to come in tune a lot quicker than me right now and you Um, can find that so me interval in examples of music from but is that because of our culture or is that because of vocal development I mean if- no, because you hear it, you hear it in his, I think, yeah, because it's like, I mean, I, I heard, I've grew up, <laughs> I grew up, I was taught in undergrad, you know, that's the children's chant. That's the yes. children's melody. Right. So we hear it in Hispanic folk songs from Mexico. We hear it in songs yes. from Japan. We and hear I've it all over the world. It, and I will continue using it because it yeah. works well as far as in tune singing. And we've got repertoire that backs that up and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, and um, pen, just the pentatonic scale in general being such a such a worldwide thing, you know. So again, not all cultures, but many cultures basing their music on some sort of pentatonic scale is very popular. I mean, at some point you just have to make a decision and you kind of had to have to go with it and can it change right. throughout your career? Sure. I think for me, my sequence necessarily, and if we're talking in a very CODA-inspired way, my sequence necessarily hasn't changed. What I've tried to do is two things. Find more diverse music that supports that sequence and also make room and space in my classroom for teaching music that is not for literacy's sake, as far as yes. literacy in the traditional that we're experiencing music for the joy of musicking, for the joy of hearing it, for the joy of call and response and movement and doing music in a different way than analyzing and looking for the somi patterns and the tatiti patterns and and i agree and that's what i have done more of is yeah bringing in more diverse repertoire and not picking it apart melodically or rhythmically i mean being able to play along with or you know even as simple as playing a steady beat or a simple ostinato those kinds of things. But yeah, I think bringing in the repertoire and all of this to say, and I, and I introduced this, so I take full credit for any misunderstandings. All that to say is that I want to be very clear. I am not confusing teaching other music, world's music, world music, quote, world music, um, as this makes what this makes a culturally relevant class um, right education. we're not just checking the box no yes no this if nothing else i hope from the last couple of years of our book clubs that we've understood this idea of multicultural music or world music that you bring into your classroom is not teaching in a culturally relevant way they're not right. the same yeah right but 
the reason I brought it up is because in a Kodai classroom, um, that's very related. That right. what you learn is based on your repertoire. And also, right. honestly, how you teach that also trickles down from how we've been taught and, you know, coming down to reading those four beat rhythmic patterns and singing those lovely pentatonic patterns and, yeah. and all of that. And okay, yeah. well, this is a lovely segue, Tanya. Okay. Into this is we were talking off mic, um, specifically about Appendix D, which is a sample of a diasporic cultural uh, curriculum project that Karen Howard did. Um, oh, yeah. A, a yeah. music culture project, she's calling it. And she goes into great detail about this project and how she rolled it out to her students. Um, and to me, again, being, you know, like we all are, someone who just like wants an idea, it's not about taking this project and doing the exact same thing with my students, but using this as inspiration to create a similar experience, using this as a model for not only the repertoire, but also the way in which she introduces it to the students and rolls it out to the students and allows students to participate in music of five different cultures, but all within West Africa and the African diaspora. Diaspora, am I saying that word wrong? I was diaspora. Still Thank That's you. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so anyways, we don't have a timeline for this, but we'd like to put a pin in this <laughs> as far as like discussing this example, but we're also, am I ready to say this on mic, Tanya? Yeah, we're, go for it. We're going to kind of both, should we each do our own, Tanya, or should we do one collectively and talk about it? We're talking about if we were to create a similar type of unit inspired by this work, again, not cut and paste, but really come up with something that we feel meets the needs of our own student population and makes sense within our own world, and then kind of have a, let's talk about it later. Let's put a pin in it, talk about it in mid-fall or maybe even later than that. I We're going to kind of play around with this model and really hold each other accountable <laughs> and then talk about it later. How's all that sounding, Tanya? That's a, that. Well, okay. That, that is a task that is a task. requires some time and thought. Um, especially if you're telling me I have to create my own. Well, or you and I could create one together because we do have very similar um, student populations at our school. So that wouldn't be completely out of the realm of understanding as far as who our students are and meeting their needs. And perhaps ours is not as in-depth as Karen's example, because, she, I mean, we're talking weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, and that's the whole thing is that like, we've got to be very intentional. This is not like you wake up on Monday morning and like Wednesday. Oh, of start. course not. We'll start that culture. I feel like we could create, I feel like I could create, I mean, again, this kind of, she asked this question of the book, if not me, who, and if not now, when, Yeah. I feel like I could create a similar experience, even if it's in a smaller chunk of time for my students. I mean, that's the point of this, right? Is to push me beyond my norm and what yes. I normally, and I mean, honestly, this is a good time for me and all of us to be thinking about you know, even if I don't plan out all the details of my project, um, 
even if you don't get a bunch of pile a, a big pile of gunko bells exactly i would I love mean, a big pile of gunko and she talks about it she i mean she had the opportunity through her work and her academic studies to travel to ghana multiple times to be able to learn music from culture bears to be able to bring artifacts back to show her students i am not in that position so I'm thinking like on a smaller scale, a smaller amount of time with my students, but still just as meaningful. Like there's a balance there, right? Because it can still be just as meaningful and still include just as much critical thought. Could I create a similar experience for my students? I feel like the answer must be yes. Because if it's not, then what's the point? You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, of course. Yes. Um, I just, I love this. I want to do... I wanted to exactly this one that Karen Howard just sketched out because I know it's beautiful in it so just many feels ways. Feels like wow, you could really get a feel for how to do it yourself if right. you were to do. And what what would be wrong with that, Carrie? What you doing hers? What would be wrong with either of us or both of us doing this specific uh, selected cultures of West Africa and the African? diaspora i'm gonna tell you what would be wrong with me doing it is that i don't have enough knowledge of these things this to me the time is making sure i know the music because she doesn't provide the music in this book she just provides kind of the overall what she did with the kids she gives some song titles i know okay but then let's also be (laughs) realistic about the amount of time because she talks about and maybe i misunderstood but she said something about um, two to three weeks of daily instruction for each culture. So I feel like this is in the context of maybe like a, is it a middle school general? It could be like three fourths of your year. Exactly. I, that to me takes it too far. Like I, I'm not, I'm not there yet to say this is my entire year of instruction of any grade level in my school. I'm just, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not saying you should be. Would you take this and truncate, you know, just do two? Well, honestly, okay. So she talks about this too that she chose the music and the cultures to focus on based on her background knowledge and her accessibility to the material she was going to bring to the kids. I have neither of those things. Well, I know you've been to China several times, so let's just talk I have not. I Well, this is what I'm saying. It's like, okay, what do you have experience? And and I remember back when we read World Music Pedagogy and Christopher Roberts and Amy yeah. Beagle discussed that one way in is something of your own interest or your own experience. Like what one of the, I forget, uh, entry, entry points, is that what I want to say? Entry right. points of what exactly you pull from world music is your own interest or your own experiences. What do you have experience? I know that you enjoy and have played bluegrass music. Can you follow that uh, from other? I mean, let's well, West banjo. African music keep, and banjo playing to bluegrass. talking about the banjo and yeah. Yeah. you were, Rhiannon Giddens. Um, yeah thing that you were talking about in oh yeah yeah it fascinates me yeah so like that fascinates me 
um, you know, music from Mexico, mariachi music. And also it should be relevant to our students, especially in our geographical region of Colorado. Well, yes. You know, well, and ideally that are, I mean, my students are not very diverse, so I feel like I could go anywhere. Except at mine as well. Um, but also I'm thinking access to um, culture bears within our own community who can also, because she talks about bringing in guest artists and guest teachers. Okay, but don't make it so big that you don't do it because it's so big. No, but this to me, that if I already have some thoughts in my head of people who I would contact to bring into my kids, this is my argument is I, I personally don't want to do her project. I want to create something similar, smaller scale. I'm not ready to say out loud because I'm thinking in my brain yet and I don't want to commit to any one thing. (laughs) But my point is like, I'm already thinking in my head, what would be relevant to my students? What knowledge do I have? What um, access do I have to culture bears, artifacts, things like that? So anyways, all that to say, can we commit to doing something? (laughs) I don't want to let us off the hook too much, but just say some sort of project inspired by this work by Karen Howard and come back and talk about it later this year and just leave it at that for now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tall order. And I, I'm a little, it's a little overwhelming feeling just, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of similar to when we read world music pedagogy, but here's what we didn't do. I don't remember me challenging myself to be like, and now I'm going to do a, a unit or a whatever inspired by, by world music pedagogy. And guess what? I don't think I really did much change. Well, and part I, of it is I feel like I need more training. Obviously, that's a whole. I, thing. I did a tiny. I did. I did some Brazil. Right, you have experience doing that, but see, I I need I need you to hold me accountable, Tanya. <laughs> I'm well, do it. <laughs> you know, I'm so good at that. Um, no, but I could be. Yeah, we should hold each other accountable. And yes, I would like to think about this, plan this out. Um, like I said, it, it's the planning. That's that's what it is. It's deciding. That's the thing. I don't want to get hung up on the deciding. That's why I said, let's just take this one. Um, just because, well, I think it's fascinating too. Well, you and, certainly could. Well, you know, I don't now I feel like I need to make a make create my own. Right? Well, no, I'm not trying to no, if it's if that's gonna make it doable. And I think part of the conversation and what we're working through right now and what we'll talk about later is the hiccups and the difficulties and the challenges, you know, whether it's time or access to resources. So, you know, I don't want to like come back in a couple of months and be like, well, I failed, but I think that we can have a very frank discussion about, you know, what is reasonable work to ask of us who are teaching public school music education. Well, I wouldn't every be day. opposed to drop out, dropping out of teaching and becoming an ethnomusicologist for a little bit. No, that would be lovely, but that's not the reality right now. So I guess the big question is, what can we do with the time and the resources that we have? Are we able to, you and I, create one of these types of experiences for our students in an authentic way with what we have? That's the challenge I'm putting forth to us. Okay. And anyone who's listening. So um, all three of you. Um, So we're asking... (laughs) anyone else to maybe join us on this extension of this book club 
um, you know, read all the appendices because they all have helpful information, but particularly Appendix D, which starts at 195, read through this project and maybe we challenge you, dear listener, to do the same as us. And let's come back. We're not even going to say when at this point, but we're going to come back sometime this year and talk about how it went. This All right. This is daunting, but yeah, more more to come. More to come. Maybe, maybe we'll touch base even before. I, I, I can't promise. Definitely not fall as, as I know no, no. how extensive this is. Right. Um, even if I were to do exactly this, no way. I mean- you know, three weeks into school, I'm still doing day one because of my rotation. Situation. Oh, of course. And I know, and I'm saying this while, I mean, I'm dealing with the reality of moving into a rotation in which this year I'm going to see my students a lot less than I did last year. So I'm also dealing with that reality. But again, isn't that the reality so many of us deal with? And that can't be, and, and I'm not saying you, I just mean the collective us, that can't be our excuse of why we don't make changes, you know? So. I get it. Of course. Yeah. No, it can't be that excuse, but we, we can't just say we're going to do it and not do it. So, yeah. of course. All right. Well, on well, that note, fantastic book. I'm glad we read it. I knew we would as soon as I saw the title and the author, we knew we were going to read it, but um, yeah, but now, but now we need to read, like really get yeah. into the appendices. Yes. And, and start to put some of this into action. And thank you so much to Dr. Karen Howard for your work and your inspiration and just really bringing all this important work to light for so many And now we need to digest even more. So I'm so glad it's still summer and we have some digestion time. So here we go. It is time for our CODA section where we each recommend something for in or out of the classroom. Am I guessing yours is out because it's summer, Tanya? Uh, well, yeah, because I'm not hanging around the music room all by myself. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, sometimes I watch television and, but not a lot, just, you know, when there's something really good and I love the series, The Bear. Uh, and the second season of The Bear is out. Did I steal yours? No, I'm just, I'm making a face because I'm sad because I haven't watched it yet. I'm so, I've been wanting to watch it, but I don't have time, but you go ahead. Okay. Well, for any of you who like me and Carrie have, you know, that Chicago feel, I've, I spent a couple of summers living in Chicago and, and so, you know, um, <laughs> It's very Chicago. It is so Chicago. It is so Chicago. And the second season does not disappoint. Um, lots of dysfunction, honestly. Of course, you know, that's, it's, it's about uh, people who are opening a restaurant. Really, that's a very blanket statement. But um, I really love the character arcs that are going on in the second season. And I don't want to spoil anything for you. Uh, Carrie, I'll just no, say that please don't. Richie has a good character arc. Okay. Oh, I love Richie. I loved him in the beginning. Gosh, I really disliked him. Um, but he has a good character. He he does a little Jamie Tart character arc that I love. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, also Ted Lasso, last season, you know, season three. Was that season three? Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people complained about Ted Lasso season three not being awesome. And I disagree. I think it's very awesome. And the song choices are impeccable. 
And the same for the bear. The music that they use oh. in the bear. Oh, it is. I love well, the music from season one. Yeah, so I Chicago, like. So much Wilco, so much. Yeah. Oh, it's just wonderful stuff. Um, Yeah, I found the playlist for the bear season one on Spotify and listened to it a lot. Well, season two playlist gets a little cool, wacky. It, it's good. interesting. Yeah, I'm ready for it. It's good. Interesting. All right. So that's my recommendation is watch The Bear on Hulu. Oh, I love it. Okay, Carrie. So oh I know you're just lounging around in your life of leisure right now. <laughs> no. So um, I'm in Seattle right now. Uh, teaching level three pedagogy materials here at the Seattle Kodai Levels program. And I'm just so thankful to be here. I love doing this. I love this. This program is lovely. Seattle is lovely in the summer. My goodness. Um, Amazing fellow teachers, amazing teacher, educator, students in my class, my level three class. We're having a blast. So with that, I have had no free time um, these last couple of weeks we're right in the middle of our our teaching so of course it's been a couple of weeks to prepare to come and then every night it's grading and preparing for the next day um so with that said um I'm gonna get real geeky here Tanya and um there is a book that if you're listening to this podcast and you have done any Kodai training maybe you're familiar with but I'm just gonna throw it out there because it is so good. And every year when I teach Kodai Levels, when I have the opportunity to do that and I reread this book, I'm like, oh my gosh, this book is so good. So oh, this I know book... what you're going to say. Ah, I was right. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I just held it up for the picture for her. So this is Lesson Planning in a Kodai Setting, a Guide for Music Teachers by Rita Klinger. And um, it's it's put out by, by Oak, the Organization of American Kodai Educators. You can buy it directly from their website. You can buy it in other places too, but I'll link to it from Oak. No, no, you cannot. You can only buy it no, from Oak. Buy it from Oak. Um, okay. So, I mean, a caveat to this. This is not just like a casual read, like if you've never had any contact with Kodai inspired music education, this is this is not the first book you're going to want to pick up. The no, <laughs> but if you are familiar with the concept, and really, I mean, we we've talked about how this is a really good book to get after level one, even before level one. It might be a little bit too um, too much, but I mean, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. There's so much that one could pull out from this book, even without Kodai training. But if you are ready to take a deep dive or you're in the midst of it, and if for some reason your program does not already require this book, it is just such a great book to have. I mean, even just for simple things, like she has a whole list of sample ideas of practice activities that when you're in the practice mm-hmm. stage of a concept, here's a whole list of things. Her you can section on transitions is... Oh, yes the best. You are stealing my thunder. That's exactly what I was going to say. So yeah, a lot of talk sometimes happens in our world about how to transition from one activity to the next. And guess what? There are more ways to transition than just um, go back to your seats and then we're going to do another song or hey, everybody, (laughs) let's play this game. You know, there's just, there's so much more fun ways, much more fun. (laughs) That's the best grammar ever you know, funner ways to put it all together. So anyways, it's, it's an ways amazing book. to uh, maintain your, the students engagement. Yes. Flowing from one activity to the next. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's lovely. It's very well done. It's As Christopher Roberts would say, it's some, uh, some lovely pedagogy. Yes. Yes. So 
Lesson Planning in a Kodai Setting, Guide for Music Teachers by Rita Klinger, an amazing resource, and we'll link to it in the show notes. We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Share notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. And we always appreciate folks buying us a coffee, so look for that link on our show notes and on our Facebook page. Until next time, this is Carrie. And this is Tanya, wishing you happy musicking. <laughs>